Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starkey. And me, Jonathan Gullis. So thank you for tuning in to Inside Whitehall. On the pod today, we're looking at political parties and specifically how they run. Behind the leader and elections, including by-elections, there is a whole organisation dedicated to its members, supporting the party leader, raising money and ultimately to fight and win elections. And there is no one better to do that than today's guest. Brandon Lewis is one of the most respected people in Westminster, having been in government across a range of portfolios and is known as one of the most competent ministers that's been in government in recent times. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for that introduction. Well, it's also <laughs> Sir. It's also Sir Brandon. Sir, now. oh my God, I've actually I've forgotten the Sir Brandon. Forgive me. I should also declare an interest here. Brandon was actually uh, my first sort of first boss, really, in Westminster. Of course, you've got a leader of a party. But uh, when I became a parliamentary private secretary, it's PPS that we talked about in season one. It was to Brandon Lewis. So I was backing up Brandon as the uh, bag carrier in Westminster whilst he was the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. So, Although like, when it comes to Jonathan, being his boss is a very loose <laughs> description and turn of phrase. We'll never get on to that. When I, when I was looking at your biog, I mean, take, take over a marginal, made it into a safe seat, you know, and the, but when, went through the, I'm sure I've missed at least one of your ministerial portfolios. <laughs> I've got, so tell me, you can tell me where I've got one I've missed. So I've got housing, policing, immigration, security, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Secretary of State for Justice, and chairman of the party. Have I missed one? Yeah, I was local government and fire minister and pubs and high streets minister. Like, I knew oh, I knew. No, I was pubs and high streets. The pubs and minister sounds like that's a pretty good game. Well, somebody has to do it. Someone has and to I do it. I was prepared to bear that burden for a while, yeah. So we could have done a range of things. <laughs> yeah. But We've I've, chosen chairman. I was chairman fascinated, of the party. particularly how do you run a political party and mm. all the different the, the bits in it. And it's, with the pod, one of the things we try to do is look at things in Westminster that we maybe talk about, but people don't actually understand what goes on. And I definitely think chairman of a party, particularly the Conservatives, is one of those where you just there's so much stuff that happens yeah. behind the scenes. But to start off with, when we have someone on the pod, we always just start by asking them how and why they got into politics. Sure, yeah. For me, it was an evolution. When I was very young, I'd helped deliver leaflets for a guy called Robin Squire, who was the MP in Hornchurch, actually. Um, but I got actively involved in about 97. And I can still remember saying to, explaining to Eric Pickles, who was the MP where I lived, everything I thought that was going to be problematic for that uh, 97 election. And he said, well, you might be right. Uh, but if people like you don't get involved, why would it ever change? Which I thought was a fair point. So I said, well, okay, I'll get involved. And there weren't many 26-year-olds getting involved actively in the Conservative <laughs> Party in 97. So I was uh, in that mode where people would say, oh, you should come to this, you should go to that. And I can still remember, actually, um, I had a councillor come to see me who was going to talk me through how it all works. And he turned up on a Saturday morning at about 10 a.m. at my house. And we said, would you like a drink? And he said, yep, lovely. Uh, I'll have a gin and tonic, which threw my wife and I, because we meant a cup of tea or coffee at 10 <laughs> o'clock in the morning. Um, but anyway, he went through and explained to me, and I slightly uh, praise it, but he basically explained that if I was to behave myself, then the following year he would take me out and show me how to deliver leaflets. And if I did it well enough, the year after I could do them on my own, and then the year after that he'd take me canvassing, and, then the, and it worked out by the time I was 40, I might be able to stand for council. I was like, well, okay, that's fine. I'm doing a finishing a degree, I'd started a new business, so that was fine. Somebody else in the party phoned me and said, how did it go? So I told them, and he said, right, look, forget about that. Can you come to a meeting on Friday night next week? So I said, yes, yeah. so I want to introduce you to everybody. It'd be a great time. There'd be a few people there. Fine. So I go to this meeting in a village hall uh, in Mount Nessing, and it's packed, and its seats are laid out everywhere, and the 
guy who had said to me, he was the agent at the time, a great guy called Andrew Varney, came up to me, found me, and he said, right, I've got a seat for you. And he walks me to the front and then shows me a seat at a table facing the audience. And I now <laughs> realise this is not normal. I've like, he said, no, no, you've been elected unopposed as the Deputy Chairman Political for the Brimwood <laughs> Conservative Association. And that was kind of my introduction. And it became an evolution for me. Then it was, oh, you should stand for council and it'll only take a few hours every few months. And oh, yeah. The next thing I know, I'm Lord <laughs> Chancellor and signing the King's accession document. So it's, uh, it's what, it, yeah, for me, it was an evolution. I never set out to be an MP. Mm. It was very much an evolution through that kind of When route. did you first think that you might get to pretty much the top of government? When, like, how far were you in when you were like, oh, I'm going to probably end up as a captain? Oh, quite a long way. So when I, so I, I didn't, look to be an MP. I, I didn't particularly look to be a councillor, but I enjoyed being a councillor. I got talked into fighting the 2001 general election in Sherwood in Nottinghamshire, which I really enjoyed. It was during that election I thought, no, I really want to do this. I got okay. the bug uh, to be an MP and uh, came across and got to where I first met and uh, got Mike Spencer involved, who ended up as chief whip and the MP for Sherwood. Wow. Um, and then I went back to Brentwood uh, became leader of the group um, against my better judgment at the time, but we managed to uh, take control of Brentwood Council from the Lib Dems, the longest standing Lib Dem council in the country, I think, at the time. About 12 years it had been Lib Dem. Big, big change there. And so I didn't stand in 05 because we just won Brentwood. I wanted to see that through. So I helped run Eric Pickles's 05 campaign because he'd had a tough time in 01. And then, um, it, so I got elected in the end. I even got selected in uh, Great Yarmouth in 06, got elected in 2010. I thought I'd do one term. Having won it from Labour, the chance is going to be quite, you know, if we, if we, if we win it, it's going to be difficult to you hold it. You thought I'm not going to, I'm probably but not going to I didn't know. I was going to work my backside off to, to hold it. But, you know, you when you won it from Labour, it's one of, you know, you're you also had the UKIP presence, right, as well, well at the time. Well, after, yeah, that came after 2010. But yes, by 15 we did. Mm. I had a complete shock in 2012. And so in that first parliament, I still remember talking to my whip at the time about what I wanted to do. And my thing was that if I can win my seat again in 15... It would be lovely to think I've got a chance of being a PPS in a second parliament. So when I got the phone call in 2012 to go to number 10 and David Cameron made me a, a minister at uh, what was then CLG, it was a complete shock to the system to me. And I never even then thought about, it was only when I became, when I started being talked to about becoming chairman and then when I was chairman, I thought, actually, I think I, 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 I can do a cabinet job. And although I'd been in cabinet before I was chairman, it was a junior cabinet job. Uh, so it was actually quite late that I really thought, yes, I, I feel at, at home here and I can do this. I was keen to know when, when, or how, who called you when you got the offer to become chairman and what was your reaction? Was it sort of a job that you'd always thought, oh, I'd love to end up there one day or was it a surprise, mm. but a good surprise or was it a, oh no, actually this could be, this is going to be quite tricky. <laughs> So when I'd been a uh, association chairman, I ended up as chairman of Brentwood and Ongar Conservatives and I'd been an area officer and I'd gone and done chairman. There's in not many jobs you've not had in the No, <laughs> and I'd gone and done chairman in what's called supportive status. So if an association gets into trouble, they'll get somebody to come in and be chairman to tidy it up. And then, and I'd done that for the party as well. So as it came up, it was in 2018 um, there was lots of rumours that Patrick McLaughlin was going to retire, step down, step away. People started talking to me about you. You'd be a, you should be you. You'd be a good chairman. Would you like to be chairman? Just colleagues and things. And because Eric Pickles had been chairman, and I'd helped him as a volunteer in that 09, 10 period when he was chairman, I sort of knew what the job involved. It always interested me, um, and because I love the party and come from the party, it, it appealed to me. And it was a party conference in eighteen. A couple of donors came and said, "Oh, it'd be great if you were chairman." 
And then one cabinet colleague, who I, I won't name, it's not fair on them without telling them, said to me, look, I think you'd be a really good chairman. If you're up for it, I'm going to make this case. So when it came around to that reshuffling, what was it, January 2018, I kind of had an inkling that I was in the running for it, mm. which meant that I also was able to have in my head how I thought the job should be done. Um, but then I get the phone call very, very early in the morning. Can you come to number 10? The PM would like to see you. It, and it was like 9 a.m. Now, traditionally, when you're called early in the morning, that's <laughs> one of the big... Well, no, no, no. Sorry. It was after the sacking. Oh, okay. But they do bigger jobs yeah, first. Yeah. What I didn't know is Theresa May had decided she wanted to reprofile the chairman's job to make the point that it's a premier job and a full cabinet job, not attending. So she was doing it early. And I get in the car and I'm assuming I'm going to be chairman because of everything that was going on. And while I'm in the car on Twitter, it comes up Chris Grayling is chairman of the Conservative oh Party. Oh my God, yes. I forgot about yes. this. Yes. So I'm like- That was when you were made chairman. Exactly. So I'm in the car going to number 10 thinking, <laughs> well, if Chris is chairman, Chris is- what am I going to be? This is, this is fascinating now. I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> and of course, I get there and find out Chris is not chairman of the party. And that was a 20, as Chris always said, he was the most successful chairman. He never lost a councillor, never lost an election. <laughs> Um, whole 26 seconds. And yeah, so I get to number 10 and uh, was asked to be chairman. And um, I outlined to Teresa how I thought the role should be done. And she was absolutely, yes, absolutely. And she backed it. And to be fair to her, she was a brilliant leader to work with as chairman because she, she allowed us to go and to run the party. And I was very lucky. I had a fantastic chief exec to work with. And we were a really good team. And, and I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Who was your chief it. exec, sorry? Uh, Mick, Sir Mick Davis. Oh, Sir Mick, of yeah, course. Brilliant man, brilliant guy. We were very, very lucky to have him. He was he was brilliant to work with, and has and has become a very, very close friend. Mm. And so, what is the is the job of a chairman? Is there a specific job, or you? Because you said you outlined to the prime minister what you thought the job should be. So, is it is it a job that you can kind of shape? Yeah, actually, and and again, one of the best descriptions I've heard of the job is it's the Conservative Party's equivalent to Doctor Who in the sense of everybody who plays Doctor Who shapes that character in their own image and in their own way. And you can do that with chairman. You can, Every chairman, if you think about it, has their own way of doing it. Some are very uh, donor-facing, some are very media-facing, some are campaign-facing. They take different mm. approaches. Um, so that's one of the beauties of that job. You can make it your own. Um, and you and you have that ability, and you've got the whole of that CCHQ team and who, who were brilliant. I, I loved working with them. Um, and the volunteer party, of course, because I come from it. I, I really enjoyed that, and you... Uh, there's and there's all different facets to it. Yes, you are responsible for running those elections and overseeing and make sure everything's in place. The professionals are doing the work, but you're there to oversee that, to give political input into number ten and to cabinet colleagues where you can help with that to give them a feel for the party. Uh, yes, fundraising and donors, and obviously as chairman, you end up doing a lot of media as well. Often, uh, as I say, different chairmen take different approaches. I enjoyed all those different things and the organisational stuff. So. Uh, so I, I try to get involved across a, a range of things and, and you chair the board of the party. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great job. And on that, so you, so the context is the time that you became chairman was a tough time for the prime minister. Yeah. For the party. And, and, and the way I would describe it, certainly when the conservative party is in government <clears throat> and it is different if you're in opposition, but if you're in government, the leader of the party is busy being prime minister. Mm. So you've, the chairman is effectively leading the party in practice. And that's why the relationship between the chairman and the PM is so important. They've got to trust each other, give each other the space to do their job and be able to rely on them. If you're in opposition, I think I suspect it's a bit different having seen it because, of course, when you're in opposition, the leader of the party is in CCHQ because that's time. their office. They've got more time. So you've got to 
a different dynamic. But uh, And that's where, as I say, Teresa as PM and leader was brilliant to work with because she gave us the space and trusted us to do our job. And that that time being a tough time, I mean, particularly I'm thinking of colleagues, of MPs. Yeah. There's divisions in the party. I think it's fair to say- You've got the Brexit divi- wars going on, right? Divisions in the party. How how were you able to help your party leader, the prime minister, as chairman, navigate some of that? Or were, is that was that part of your job at the time? You kind of to an extent. To I mean, obviously, the whips <clears throat> kind of lead on party management. Um, as chairman, you're there and you're you're working the voluntary party, and obviously, you're trying to bring candidates on, making sure the PM is aware of where the party is and what the political polling is telling us, and that kind of thing as leader of the party. You work a bit with the whip's office, not least of all when uh, colleagues are... And it's very rare, obviously, but occasionally colleagues do things they probably shouldn't do. Mm. Uh, Usually late at night, uh, towards the end of the week, uh, there's there's a a member of the party or a councillor or an MP. Seems to be 10 o'clock at night on Twitter after alcohol. Seems to be a very popular time for people. For some reason, I've never worked out. Patrick McLaughlin once said, Never go on social media when you've had a drink or after 10 o'clock at night. And that was very good very advice. Wise advice. And I would endorse that to everybody. But um, so dealing with those kind of issues and working with the party. And yes, look, obviously there were some challenging times. We had the confidence vote, which uh, we took the CCHQ team over and had to, and helped manage and run that confidence vote. And obviously successfully for Teresa. Um, and yeah, and just being part of that machine that tries to find a way through things and help the party is, is the job. Because You've got two duties as, as chairman, I think. One is to the leader who's appointed you, but you've also got to be conscious. You've got a duty to the party. And obviously, I ended up as chairman running the leadership campaign, the, say not as in the, the structure of it for the mm. two candidates and making sure that works and make sure the party got its chance to have its say. And one of the things I'm most proud of as chairman is that leadership process because everybody's worried because I let the media in for the first time about what the party would look like, the sort of questions they'd ask. And I had confidence, and we were proven right, our members absolutely shone. They understood the importance of what they were doing, and they were brilliant all through that process. And, uh, and, and I'm very proud of that, actually. I'm really keen to go back, because a little bit, because I suppose it's become, maybe it's more fashionable these days, but as chairman, it would have been rare to be chairman, whilst there is a confidence vote in the leader, particularly a leader who's the prime minister. You've obviously got the, this one single issue, membership was very divided on with Brexit. You've also got local elections where, um, you know, in 2019 across the country, it was very difficult night and sort of managing expectations. And of course, you've also then got donors to try and keep on side, some of whom might have a view on the said issue, Brexit at the time, very mm. strongly either way. The confidence vote in particular, though, I think is a real fascinating one. You've, you know, it's been called. Did you have an inkling it was definitely coming down the track or how quickly were you informed after Sir Graham's gone in to see Theresa May to say, the numbers have been reached. And then what's your, what's the operation that you put together quickly? Uh, yeah. So being in parliament at the time, you kind of had a sense that, you know, and, and actually took the people who pushed for the Connors vote, it took them a lot longer, I think. And you have to talk to them, but it yeah. seemed to me it took them longer to get the final number of letters together than they thought it would. Um, because it is quite a big thing to put a confidence letter in, in a PM, particularly if you're not, you know, a diehard anti kind of person so it took them a while so we kind of knew one was going to come at some stage um i do remember the night that it all came together um and i was in number 10 when the phone call it was a phone call actually between the pm and graham brady um 
and I was there and then obviously off the back of that we were then sitting and strategizing what we're going to do and uh, as tempting as it is to give away the insides of that I, I'm, I'm dyslexic so I'll probably never write a memoir but if I do I'll save it for that but but look we then spent yeah we we then mapped out how we thought we should work it what we should do and and deliver it and obviously Teresa got a very big win in that confidence vote it went really badly wrong actually after that where them because Teresa had always been very popular with the party she'd come from the party she'd done the Friday night, October, yeah. Friday night dinners for years. Yeah, yeah, she really is. She still is. Mm. One of the best things for me as chairman, talking to people about campaigning, occasionally talking to colleagues and candidates who weren't campaigning enough and, oh, there's so much going on, I haven't got time, has been able to point out, well, if the PM can find time pretty much every Saturday to knock on doors, so can you. And Therese was brilliant at that. Still is. She's still one of the hardest campaigners around. Um and I actually, I can remember being at a Conservative Councillors' Conference where we had to get her speech done in time so she could go out and still, she wanted a <laughs> campaign. Um, so working with someone like that makes your job a, a, a bit easier, actually, in terms of how you, you, you pitch to people. But, so she came from the party and the party did, she was very popular with the members. Where we really went wrong was around the Brexit um, vote and particularly, and different people have different views of this, but my view was two things kind of came together around the same time. One was... Uh, a number of cabinet colleagues abstained on a particular vote and were allowed to do so and were not sacked for abstaining on a government bill um, and a government issue that had collective responsibility. And that really upset donors and members. And around the same time, we it was decided that we were going to fight the European elections. Yeah. And members were furious about that. And as chairman, I was very clear, I'm not using donors and members' money to fight elections. We shouldn't be fighting. We should, you know, we, we've left the EU. We've voted. We're I remember, leaving. as someone on the parliamentary approved candidates list, getting an email from the Westminster's regional kind of team saying all parliamentary approved candidates must campaign at least once for the party in the European elections. And I remember there being a WhatsApp group, some of whom are colleagues now, actually, in Parliament. And it was all discussed of how they were going to do it. And basically, the agreement was... We'll get the leaflets. We'll do the street that we live in and get the photo to send it in. And that's it. I remember like it was a breaking point moment for a lot of members. Oh yeah, it was. And, and it was for the members. And I, and that's why I remember saying, look, I will, we, we need to spend the minimum we can on this because we're, we're not in Europe. We're not going to be in Europe and we're not, no, it was obvious we were not going to do well in those elections. So why would we throw good donors and members money after bad? Um, and that was really difficult. And I still think that was the final straw. That's where members were like, okay, this is, this is not happening. This Do you is think it's remarkable down. when you think and there, that? And there was then a move in the, in the voluntary party to get a sort of voluntary party vote of confidence. Oh, so yes. That's when, that's yeah. when the, chair, the chairs of associations were that's having it. votes of confidence yeah, and yeah. stuff like why that. Why do you think they, why did they, why did someone really want to fight those elections? That, that does seem crazy. Because it, crazy it, was a, it was a legal thing. Okay. Um, I'm not going to go into the privacy of a cabinet meeting, but there, mm. were, there was a legal, we, we were legally, um, we had to do it. I have to say that my personal view was always, we should have been saying to the EU, look, we have left the European Union. Um, I, I think there's a rule about the European Union decisions and this, and Strasbourg, sorry, not Strasbourg, the um, European Parliament, every member state has to be represented for them to be able to vote and do things. Mm -hmm. My view was this is a good, we should be using this to negotiate the deal to leave on the basis of if we don't get it negotiated, we're not fighting the elections, we won't have representatives, then you can't do anything because mm. you've got a member state without representatives. Seems good. But they should have put you in charge of negotiations. But legally, th there was a decision made that um, that we had to fight the elections. So, okay, as, 
that's the government's decision, that's the government's decision. But as chairman of the party, my duty to the party is also about our funding. Mm. It doesn't make sense to fire that. But I think that's where the members really lost their patience with the government was like, this doesn't work. I think it's amazing when you quickly look back because in that period, we got what, 9% of the vote share yeah, nationally. Yeah. And then a number of months later, we're winning a eight seat majority. It's quite a remarkable story really and shows you how much can change in politics. You talked also about the leadership sort of election that you, you oversaw. How, how easy is that or how much do you get involved when it's inside Westminster or is that very much driven by the chair of the 1922, Sir Graham Brady? And is it you actually are just sort of thinking about once we get to the final two, that's when sort of Conservative HQ then kicks into effect? So it's a mixture. <clears throat> so the board of the party has to agree things, but the 22 committee kind of run the parliamentary side. Graham Brady had recused himself. So it was um, Cheryl Gillam and uh, Charles Walker, who were both brilliant to work with. Absolutely super. They were, they were really good. Um, and we straight away went into planning the process because, of course, we hadn't had a leadership campaign for a very long time. Because when Theresa won, obviously Andrew Lesson pulled out. So there was no membership mm. process. And my view is we, we can't not have the media involved. We've got to get around the country. We're in government, so we've got to do this as quickly as we can. So we, while the parliamentary stage was going on, we were doing all the planning around booking venues, finding um, compares, and Ian Dale was the, the main compare we used. who was superb through all of it. Um, and plotting and planning all of that so that we could put on a really good campaign that high, gives both candidates a good opportunity to put their case. And the party actually take an opportunity to show the country how good the Conservative Party and its members are. And they really did. They, the, our members were superb. Yeah, and, and so on the mechanics of it, though, <clears throat> so you mentioned, I mean, they're costly things, the uh, leadership election. Yes. <laughs> but the big focus of, a, of CCHQ is winning elections themselves. Yeah. So as chairman, how, you, how do you gear up the party to win an election? What are the, what's the things that need to happen? Obviously, money's a big thing, yep. but all parties need money yeah how, how do you get them ready to go and fight an election so you it, it's a mix there's no single thing it's a whole it's like a big jigsaw and all the pieces have got to come together so if i use an example 2018 where we were predicted to have a really difficult set of elections we actually outdid expectations and the reason we were able to do that was as chairman and, and Theresa, having again having a pm who campaigns hard themselves is actually quite helpful mm. um because you can then say to cabinet colleagues i expect you and the party expects you to go and do your bit because when cabinet colleagues and ministers go out with volunteers, it gives volunteers a boost. If volunteers see if they're doing it, I can do it. It's not just all of them expecting all of us to do all the work. So you, you're one big team. And my view is always the Conservative Party is at its best when it's one big family. So I would be going around the country and travelling. The, the leader, was, and Theresa was very good at getting out and about, and we got cabinet colleagues and ministers out and about and motivating the troops and showing that we are all in this together, to use the cliche, but we really are. Um, and you just got to kind of drive that ethos through everybody. Um, and also you've got to be, you've got to use the strategic sort of view of it about where, so if I go back to when I was leader of the opposition in Brentwood council, I took the view that my job was not to win every seat in Brentwood. It was to win control of the council. So focus, not, don't spread your resources too thinly. Look at what do you need to do to win and which seats and what do you need to put into those seats to win and actually really focus. And, and you do think, so I, I still remember the week before polling day being coming down to London and um, I was in Barnet 
and we were out campaigning. And I, I always use this as a really good example. It was, it was horrible weather. It was pouring rain about four o'clock. And the Labour Party had passed us in the street and they were going into the pub because it was wet and they thought they'd won the seat anyway and they stopped and went in and had a beer. We carried on and finished the street. Got to another four or five houses. And come Thursday, our candidate won that division and we held Barnet Council and actually technically took it back from Labour by one seat. And in that division, if I remember correctly, one vote. Really? Wow. Now, it may not be one of those four doors that made the difference, but it was certainly one of those. It's that extra bit of work. And as a council um, a leader and a group leader, as a councillor, I can remember seeing people win and lose by three votes, by six votes. I've seen people lose and win council seats on the draw of straws, on the turn yeah. of a card. You know, mm. that extra door you knock on, that extra leaflet you deliver, that extra person you speak to or knock up, it makes a difference. But the, the you you said when it's, there's a difference between when you're in government to when you're in opposition. And one of the differences is you kind of got government messaging and then yeah. party messaging. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, how do you balance what comes out of the party, CCHQ, election leaflets, that kind of stuff, whether it's local by-elections and what the government's saying? Like, how do you, because you're kind of... But it's a balance. So it's a balance. Yeah. So when you're in government, obviously the party's messaging has got to be in tune with and in line with government messaging. Exactly. It can look a bit more forward because the party can say, look, this is what we would like to do in the future. And you mm. can do that in an election. I actually think voting is a positive thing. You choose to leave your home. You choose to go to the polling station. You choose to put your tick in that box. That's all physical positive things. So we should give you a positive reason to do it. Um, so I was always very keen on a very positive message. Um, and you've got to give people a reason to go and vote. But ultimately, if you're in government, yes, of course, your your core message has to be government-based. And you look at what are the core government things that relate lo to a local government election, because obviously I was doing local government elections rather than a general, um, and how does that fit with the party? You work with the leaders and the main leaders in local government as well. So again, when I was at DCLG, one of the things we used to do every Wednesday was we'd meet all the leaders of local government and we meet politically as well. So you make sure you're all on the same, you, you, we work as a team. And, mm. and so when you deliver it, you're delivering something as a team. And that makes a big difference because then everybody's got buy-in to what you're trying to do. And then structurally, you mentioned Sir Mick Davies earlier. So yep. you have a chairman, a chief exec, and then various roles. What's the delineation between the chairman and the chief exec? Like, do they have, are they kind of, a unit or do they have slightly different roles as the chief exec? Well, a again, part? I think if you talk to different chairman and chief execs, they'll probably have different relationships. Um, Mick and I clicked day one, got on very, very well. So I would say we had a symbiotic relationship. Um, Mick as chief exec was sort of operationally running the party, um, was also the chief treasurer. So we'd be responsible for fundraising, but I would also help and worked with the treasurers on fundraising and Mick would get involved. So we worked really as a team. Um, and I was, you know, Mick was always very, very clear. Ultimately, Brandon's the chairman, so I chaired the board of the party. So I had, took that sort of lead role. But it was a team effort. It was, there was at no point would I say this was all about, you know, any particular person. It was a team effort. And with the wider team at CCHQ as well, we had a really good team. I enjoyed working with them. And the senior members of the volunteer party as well, who sit on the board of the party, it was, it was a proper team effort. And that's what made it fun as well. Challenging, yes, because of what we were going through, as we've been talking about. Uh, but I, but it was actually enjoyable to be part of a, t a proper team like that. Obviously, cabinet ministers will have, um, maybe as a Secretary of State, sorry, will have a department to go to, for example. You have CCHQ. How often would you have been inside Conservative HQ with the on a day, on a weekly basis? Oh, I was, no, every day. <clears throat> so I was also, obviously, uh, um, as a 
member of the cabinet. I was also minister without portfolio at the time. That's a, that's a, yeah, you forgot that <laughs> one as well. Minister without portfolio in the cabinet office. I missed that. Uh, yeah. And um, so I, what I would tend to do, I'd only spend probably half a day or so a week in the cabinet office, which I'd tend to do on a Tuesday. I'd do cabinet and then have that morning in there. Unless there was other things I had to particularly go in for, and obviously certain meetings, etc. Uh, but generally, I'd be in CCHQ every day. And Thursdays and Fridays, I'd generally be traveling somewhere around the country, visiting associations, campaigning, doing visits, wh- whatever was required. But sort of Monday to Wednesday and sometimes Thursday, Friday, yeah, I'd be in CCHQ. And um, with with Conservative HQ, one of the things, particularly the political nerds who uh, one day want to become an MP uh, from... <laughs> Don't know why they would uh, nowadays. It's a great job. It is a great job. It is a great job. Candidates, there's always gossip. You know this, that the chairman has favourites, that the chairman's pushing their preferred type of candidate into selections to get the candidacy. Let's just myth bust this once and for all. How much input does a chairman have on controlling the type of people that get approved and then selected? (laughs) And I'm saying that with a personal interest as well, of course. But how often does that, how much does a chairman really have influence on that? Or do you well, think it is a quite a safe I spent quite a lot of time trying to stop one Jay Gullis getting selected. And I had no benefit. <laughs> it didn't work. So it's, clearly, uh, yeah, no, look, on a serious note, no, obviously I didn't, but on a serious note, no, look, it's, um, so you have no, I, as chairman, I personally didn't directly, I'm trying to think of the best guy. I tell me do it the other way around. What I did do as chairman was I took the view that there were people on the candidates list who were not the right people to be on the candidates list. So I said, well, let's make sure everybody's good. Because if you want to be a Conservative Party candidate, you want to be an MP, you've got to campaign. So one of the things I brought in was that they needed to go out and be campaigning. And I wanted to see reports of campaigning. And if somebody wasn't campaigning in a local... you only need to blame for this. Okay, fine. Yeah, so if you weren't campaigning in a reasonably near by-election or in local elections in your area, I wanted to know why. Now, some people have jobs where they are not allowed. Okay, then there's other things you can do, and that's fair dues. Or, you know, there might be specific reasons. But if somebody isn't campaigning just because they can't be bothered or they're too busy, well, then there's, if you're too busy to campaign, you're never going to be able to be an MP because you have to campaign. I can say um, this for certainty, because it's 2017 I was on the list, and then I ran uh, in sort of Washington and the West. And I do remember when you came in, there was a real big shift. It was the first time we were sent forms and we had to fill in. Um, you would get a call saying, uh, I was nearby Redditch. Redditch got local elections. That's the target council. You're going to spend time there. Here's the paperwork, date, time, yeah. how many hours you spent there, what activity you did, and essentially who's a, a name of lo- someone local that will verify the story. Yeah, exactly. And I do actually remember thinking, oh, they'll never check this. And then people calling me <laughs> saying... Mike Ralph's a friend of mine going in Redditch going, no, like we've had the call. I've had to go through and say, yes, you turn up all these sessions. Yeah. Photographs um, will be asked for to prove And things. the first time around we did that, we removed about 50 people from the list uh, because I, w- I went through this. And I remember seeing a couple of names that I knew hadn't campaigned because I'd speak to the relevant chairman or whatever ad hoc. And they say, oh no, I've never heard of that. So you knew. So my view is that I want people who are going to campaign because winning elections isn't rocket science, but it is damn hard work. Whatever party you're from, you've got to go out and put the shoe leather in. And if you can't be bothered to do that when you want to get on the list, how how can I expect you to do it when you're looking to get elected? So the campaigning thing was very key for me. But when it comes to the actual process, the choosing of a candidate is ultimately a matter for that local association. I think that's really important because that means that association has chosen and then can build and have that relationship and that connection with their candidate. So yeah, you've got the candidate being selected, which is obviously really important. Once the candidate is selected, oh sorry, 
Once again selected, obviously they're campaigning or monitoring that. You've mentioned earlier the relationship with chairman of associations. How easy is it to maintain a relationship with 650 chairmen, essentially? Obviously, some will be federated and they'll come together. How easy is it to keep that relationship with those people to oversee that many associations? Because ultimately, if it all goes wrong, the media bring the issue to your doorstep yeah. and you're held responsible for it. Yeah, and it, look, it's difficult because there are you know 650 and you've got you know, association uh, council group leaders and uh, area chairman and area officers and the national convention officers, which is the leadership of the voluntary party. So it is challenging. And what you have to rely on is your relationships with the head of the voluntary party, who's the chairman of the national convention. I had two in my time as chairman and I felt I had a good relationship with both. In fact, one of them is now in the House of Lords and really, really work very closely with. Um, and then you do build relationships. Obviously, there's some chairman you get to know better than others because they're very active or they have problems in their area where you engage with them. Um, and you, but you've, it's just kind of letting the party know that you are there for them. And actually, I think, and look, the people in the party will have to give you an answer on this, but my view was coming from the party, I think, helps because they knew I'd been an association chairman. They knew I was a member for longer than I've been an MP. Um, and actually, you just got to show them, hopefully, by not by saying it, but, but the things you, that you do that you are always conscious that you are chairman of the party and therefore your duties to the reputation and structure and strength of the Conservative Party. You talk about the importance of the Conservative Party. We're aware now of this thing called the Conservative Democratic Organisation, CDO. Law Crudders is pushing this idea that we need, members need to have a wider voice. Do you think there's some legitimacy that could be argued that membership maybe should be given more power or should have more influence over certain things? Or do you think the balance that probably at the moment is about right? Well, I... I think giving members more voice and more involvement is a good thing. <clears throat> I don't agree, and I've been open about this, I don't agree with their requirement for the chairman to be elected by the party members. The party members elect the chairman of the national convention. They have a chairman of the party, if you like, for the voluntary party. In my time, that was Andrew Sharp, now Lord Sharp, and before that, Rob Semple. Um, and they've got Pam, Pamela Hall's done it, and, that, and that's their representative, that's their chairman. I think the fact that the chairman of the party and the chairman of the board of the party is appointed by the leader is important because, as I said earlier on, the leader has to be able to trust and work with their chairman. They've got to have a symbiotic relationship and get on well and be able. And I, 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 I didn't. I knew Theresa obviously where she'd been Home Secretary, but I got to know her better as chairman. But that relationship has to be one of trust. So the leader has to be able to choose the chairman, in my opinion. But I think the wider. Um, call and push to have the voluntary party more involved, I think is a good thing. And the voluntary party, whether it's in policy areas like the Conservative Policy Forum, who feed in, I was always very keen. And one of the things I wanted to do more of was how do we show the voluntary party that when they're doing these uh, policy works that they send in, that they actually are feeding into government policy? Because they quite often do. What we've not always been good enough at is showing the voluntary party that this thing that we're now announcing in government is thanks to the work you guys did, you fed in. Because our party is full of experts. You know, the Labour Party and some of the media will occasionally criticise us for our donors and, and engaging with donors. But actually, some of our donors are donors because they're successful in their business careers. Mm. And because they're successful, they are experts that we should in government be listening to. And, and certainly in the party, I want to get their feedback because they know how to run things and do things. Um, and our members, we've got, you know, members who are doctors, nurses, teachers, you know, across all the professions. I want that. And my view is we want that expertise to feed into what we're doing. And so I'm curious, so, you know, as you said, you kind of, you did some local elections, but the chairman right now will be looking ahead and we know we've got a general election in yes, 12 Yes, well, and actually, we kind of thought we might have had one when I was chairman. There was always a chance there was going to be a, if you remember that early 2019, there, there, 
you know, the Prime Minister never, ever said to me, I'm th- so it wasn't that. But in CCHQ, we just took the view, we need to be ready. Mm. So you've always got a little mind for the fact that there could be a decision to go for a, for an election, particularly because obviously we'd done it in 17, so there's always the possibility. Exactly. I mean, the chairman now, is, if, they, if they haven't been told, has got to be kind of ready for spring. It's possible. Look, if I was chairman now, I'd want to be, in my mind, I'd want to make sure that I'm ready by spring and then anything after that gives me just more time to do more. Look, but then I'm, I come from a viewpoint that even if you take the local elections next spring, you want to win the election before Christmas. And then after Christmas, you're sealing the deal and reinforcing. But actually, the hard work is done now and, and in the summer just gone. And so I'm curious, what, what's the thing you said, I'm, I need to be ready for spring? What are the things that the party needs to be? Let's, we're not assuming they're not doing them, but what are the oh, things? Oh yeah, yeah. The party- I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm sure the team at CCHQ and Greg Hands will be doing all of these kind of things, or, or they'll have their view about what they need. You know, I can only talk about what I think. Mm. Um, and and I'm and I and Greg's a great guy and a, and, a, and a really sound man. But when I was there, what I was focused on was getting campaign managers in place, raising the money, getting the campaign so managers just trained. For listeners, sorry. Campaign managers are dealing with a local area. Yes. Yeah, so a campaign manager is a professional member of staff who's paid by the party to work in a local area, a small area or wider area, depends on where you are, and to organise and make sure the campaign is done. So that when volunteers turn up, rather than volunteers having to think about where we're going to campaign, what the literature is going to look like, is it all printed? They do all of that and get it all ready, plan it out. They know technically what we're doing. They are connected to CCHQ because they're professional staff. So they've got everything organised. The volunteers can then, in theory, turn up, grab what they're doing, go out and get on with it. And the campaign manager makes sure it's organised and structured and is working through the local strategy and the tactical delivery as well, if you like. Um, I'm having the, enough of those to be able to fight successful campaigns because my view is if you've got the best policies in the world and the best polling position in the world, you're still going to have the ground war to back it up and the ground force to do that work. Um, when times are challenging, that becomes even more important because, and particularly if you take where we are at the moment, if the polls narrow, which I, I think they will, to capitalise on that, you've got to have a good ground team. Um, so to me, that ground team was really important. And also the volunteers can then see that all their membership money is going into the campaigning that they're doing. And it works for them. At a low, it's not just about a general election. The general election is a culmination of a series of local elections that then build to the general every four or five years. And and how you mentioned the ground troops, they're essential. They're the people that are going to go knock on doors. Yeah. And I don't think it's being unfair to say in the last few months, you know, it's not necessarily, you could understand if they were a bit down, you know, by election results and the polling, which I agree with you will probably tighten, but at the moment doesn't look good. How can the party kind of keep those people enthused, keep them engaged, you know, so they're there when, when we call on them for the election, they're ready to go. Well, it's a mixture of things, and, and it goes right through the party. <clears throat> so the, the Prime Minister and the Chairman get out and about, and when they're doing visits, also going and spending time with the voluntary party and campaigning. All of us as members of Parliament, I campaign regularly. I've got a brilliant team in Great Yarmouth who work really hard, and as a result, we bucked the trend in the local elections this year, and Labour did their best, but uh, couldn't get control of Yarmouth Borough Council, which is good for the residents of Great Yarmouth. Um, but everybody, all of us have got a part to play. The MPs being out there doing that campaigning, knocking on doors, delivering leaflets in their, obviously in by-elections, but obviously in their own local areas and helping colleagues. You know, one of the things we did in one of the um, elections when I helped out back in 2015 and 17 was how you bring together whole areas. So you work together as a team. So 
you know, if you've got a really good, strong team in Great Yarmouth, making sure when we've got a bit of spare time, we're helping next door. So we were helping Duncan Baker, obviously, when he won his seat in 2019 um, from in North Norfolk, back from the Lib Dems and things like that. So you work as a team because it becomes a team. You'll win together and you succeed together. Well, so one thing... So it's, got to, it's got to infiltrate through everybody. It's got to, and that comes from all of us in Parliament and in government right the way through to the voluntary party. But it kind of comes from the top. I think it, it feels like what you're saying. It also, it's got to be a leadership. The MP's got to be out. MPs and ministers particularly, have to, yeah, they need to set the tone. Because, you know, I, I, I remember when I, was, uh, when I was a member and just a volunteer, uh, as a councillor, yes, but certainly even before being a councillor, you're going out campaigning. You, if you're out campaigning week in, week out, and Eric Pickles wasn't there... Then that's a bit, where's Eric? Mm. But we were, you know, I came from that background of having Eric Pickles was out with us. Eric was always there. He, he led from the front and he would, end, he would, he would keep everybody bubbling and going. And, you know, so I think that's important. Yeah. The, you know, the volunteers want to see that their councillors, their members of parliament, their ministers are part of the same team. And, uh, and, and I think that matters. And Brandon, knowing you, you were, camp- you are a campaigner. You enjoy campaigning. You're good at, you, you know, you've turned, what was a really tight seat, a really tight marginal, and you fought off UKIP in 2015. If you're someone that thinks about elections and campaigns, I find it hard to believe you wouldn't have thought, if I was chairman, how would I be, ta- how would I be taking on Keir Starmer? So I- I'm curious about your view on, you know, what do you think the party might do or should be doing or whatever? If so- someone called you up and said, what do you think we should be doing, Brandon? What, what, where is, James where is basically Starmer's saying it's your chance to pitch <laughs> if you ever want to return to being chairman of the Tory party. I'm, I'm genuinely curious. What do you, I mean, what do you think the election should well, be about? I, I do, I love campaign. Yeah, look, I've, yeah, I've beaten Lib Dems, Labour and UKIP and Brexit party, I guess. Yeah. So, um, over the years, but look, one of the things I've made a, a personal rule and I have stuck by it and I would like to think my successes in all my jobs would, would back me up on this is you never want to be Bancro's ghost. And any job I've had, the worst thing you could have is a, your predecessor <laughs> carping on at people about what they think you should be doing. So I've oh. never done it to a colleague. Greg's a great James. guy. Greg was my first whip as well. So um, he's a great I'm guy. Trying to be and helpful. I'm, and I'm not, and I'm, I, you know, not going to um, second guess what Greg's doing because you know, what we were doing when I was chairman was a few years ago. And what we're doing now leading to a general election with a different leader, Greg's got to look at what's right for them. So if I give, actually, I'll give you a good example of mm. where I think you've got to look at the next election, not the last one, is if you look at the 2017 general election, which obviously didn't go quite how the party, I'm sure, would have liked it to have gone. You can, some, somebody said to me once, part of the problem was we fought the 2017 election with the same kind of methodology as 2015, but with a very different leader with a different style. And would you do the same again? And actually, if I was running a general election with Theresa May, I'd have done it slightly differently to how we did 17 in terms of what we had her doing. Um, and how it was done. So, you know, what they will want to do with Rishi as leader of the party will be different to what I would have done with Boris, if you like, um, or Therese or et cetera, because Rishi is a different character. Mm-hmm. So they've got to have that space to look at what they think is right. And But for me, ultimately, as I say, winning elections, the, the, the toughest thing in it is the shoe leather and it's the hard work and it's getting those doors knocked on, getting that data, spreading the message uh, and having a positive message to give people about what you're going to do. Because what we're going to be saying to people is, Give the Conservatives another chance of another election and another parliament because we've got the ideas to take our country, continuing to take it forward um, and to continually reinvent ourselves to be current for what is needed tomorrow, particularly as we're moving into a world where AI and tech is moving so fast, our economy is going to change around that uh, and that we've got the ideas and leadership to deliver for Do that. Do you think it's possible? It's always possible. Look, as, as Jonathan, if you look at the result, 
uh, in those European elections in 19 and then what Boris did at the end of 19. Now, okay, you can argue Boris, Brexit, Corbyn was unique, but actually look at the polling at the start of the 2017 election and then where we ended up with on yeah. polling day in 2017 in six weeks, how much that changed. Mm. Um, so yeah, a lot can change in politics. We should all, I think over the last 10 years, we, you know, the, when they called the, and I appreciate present company will have a different view to me on this, <laughs> but when they called the referendum at the beginning, everybody thought they knew what the result was going to be. Yeah. And it turned out that not to be what a lot of the experts thought it would be. So, so some, we've some all learned. Some of the non-experts, inverted commas, knew what we thought the result would be. <laughs> yeah. So, so what we've learned, I think, the last 10 years in politics is you can't predict anything. And I think every, you know, every election is winnable. Hmm. And in terms of the chairman's job, if in any future reshuffle, a phone call comes in saying, Brandon, you want to come back as chairman of the Tory party? Is it one of those jobs you'd love to go back to? Or do you think it's one of those that once you've done it, it's actually kind of, unless you're, you, you can't really, you've stumped your authority, you've done it, but really you don't go back for a second bite of the chair. I don't think in my, for, to my knowledge, I remember looking at that board when I was chairman, I don't think anybody's ever done the job twice. Um, it's very, how do you recreate the part? You know, when I was there, I enjoyed it and I think we had a good period and we were successful in the context of where we were, uh, because we had a particular team at a particular point in time. And actually what's, you know, the, the team today have got to look at what's right for them. Um, so I don't think that's a, a, a call that I'm necessarily going to get, but I think, look, I think the parties, you know, we've got a chairman, we've got a leader, they've got to focus on what they're doing. They know where they want to go for the general election and we've got to give them the space to do that. And finally, for me, in terms of, um, we've heard a lot in the media recently about business. You know, a lot of it has been made about businesses now backing Labour. Uh, businesses, uh, you know, the business dinner was talked about, Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer sold out within four hours and there was some idea that the Conservatives, it wasn't as successful. How how important is this chair to engage with business? Because sometimes you get this idea, like you've mentioned earlier with donors, that it's this murky kind of behind the scenes. But surely, as you've said, it's actually about you leading the Conservative Party to go and say to business, what do you think of our ideas? What things are working? What things are not working? You know, what's that? How important is that relationship as well as with the voluntary party, as well as with obviously voters to actually engage with business as well? I think, look, I think whether it's the party or government, it's hugely important because, you know, in government, you're looking at policies that are going to have an impact on business and the economy. So it would be crazy to not take advantage of talking to people who do that day in, day out. They know what's going to affect their sector and how it's going to affect their sector and what's going on in practice on the ground. So I think it is important. And look, it's not, I don't I never thought it was. I was always very protective of our donors in the sense of, these are people who are prepared to put their money into the political system, which means the taxpayer doesn't have to. And they do it because they believe that this particular party or this particular leader or whatever it happens to be, or an individual MP is the right person for that country. And I was always very proud that we had a lot of donors who were prepared to put a lot of money in because they thought we had the ideas and they think we've got the policies to deliver for our country. To have the confidence of the business community, I think, is a very positive sign um, for the government, well, I was always very proud of having um, good, strong donors in our party, and, and we shouldn't shy away from that because I think it's a it's a much better option than all the parties having to never ever worry about what the business community or even the public think because they're going to get their because don't forget it's not just business community who, who fund parties; it's the membership. Um, if you go to public funding, then why would political parties even have to engage with their membership? Yeah. You know, you've got to take people with you, and you know, an election is about selling ideas and getting support from people. You know. That's an important part of the process. And do you do you think are people as engaged with political parties as they used to be? So you joined, you kind of probably probably got involved in like ninety seven. Yeah, 
Do you feel like there's still the desire? Because if you look at the, the electorate, they're broadly less identifying with parties. We've had biggest, we've had huge switches from election yeah. to election, which didn't used to happen in this, such a dramatic sense. And do you think that's affected membership of par parties at all? Like Labour saw a rise with Corbyn, but outside yeah, of that. I, I, look, I remember when I was younger, I mean, I've, I've been hugely generalistic here, but you often got a situation where people voted for a particular party because that's what their parents did and that's what their grandparents did, yeah. et cetera. I think that all started to change during my lifetime. I can still remember my grandparents who were, my grandfather was a Labour Union shop steward, but they changed because Margaret Thatcher allowed them to buy their own home and buy mm. shares in British Gas and BT. Um, so they became free market, pro-capitalist um, people. And that sort of, for my dad was in business and so sort of free market um, kind of always was was my think process, thought process. Um, so I think it's changed certainly now people will go out and there will be people who vote for a party, that's what they do. But a lot of people now will think about what is the party that is going to do the right thing by me and my family and friends and my community, whatever it is, um, in the future. So I think parties have to work harder. Mm. That's where it comes back to, I think campaigning is important because even if you've got the best message in the world and the best policy in the world, you've got to make sure people know what it is and understand it. So you've got to go out and campaign and sell that message. Um, so I think parties have to work harder. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I think actually, oddly, people may not be as inclined to be uh, members of or party loyal in the way they'll vote for you no matter what. But I think more and more people are engaged with what's going on in politics. Yeah. And, and I think the media actually are uh, largely to thank for that. Now, the media come in for a lot of criticism. My view has always been actually, to be fair, the media have a job to do, we have a job to do, and it's a, you, you get on with that. But the media being that 24-7 media, which puts a lot of pressure on and can lead to people looking to do things very, very quickly, but it also means people are more engaged because you've got more avenues to engage through, whether it's social media, broadcast, broadsheet, et cetera. There's so much more out there now that more and more people, I think, are actually engaged with politics, whether they realise it or not, in their everyday lives. So I think, if anything, there's more public interest. It's our job as politicians to engage with that and deliver for it. And quite, quite, last question, sorry, on, on that topic. You said at the beginning you, you got involved in 97, which is a time when a lot of people might look to the toy pie and think, <laughs> is now the time to get involved? There might be a few people looking at that. So you've got experience of kind of going in at that point. What would you say to someone who's maybe thinking about running, you know, becoming an MP in the next couple of years, but is, is not sure? Look, being a member of parliament is a great, it's a huge honour. You know, there, you can't. In any sort of public service, actually, I always say this in local government, because we're British, we shy away from being upfront about this. But the reality is, or we get, we get a bit humble about it. But the ability to get involved in something where you can change things for your community. And one of the things I think, look, whatever party you're with, I might disagree with the Labour, most Labour MPs about how they want to do things. But I respect the fact that all of us generally, 99.9% .9 of politicians, get into it because they want to make the country better. Now, what we disagree on is how to do that. Mm. But that core principle does matter. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. And if you get to do something for your community, even if it's just move, get a pothole filled, or <laughs> let alone in my paper, we've just got a hundred million pounds for the third river crossing. It's going to improve that our community. And that's a good thing. And it feels good to do that. It's a wonderful experience. You get to meet amazing people, your constituents and beyond, who are interesting and dynamic and yeah. fascinating. There, there isn't a job like it where every day and every week and every year is different. Um, so it's a fabulous thing to do. And if you have views on how the country is or your community is or your village is or your town is, and you want to see it change or improve or whatever, get involved, be part of it. 
Um, that's the best way to to do it. And I, I I would always encourage people to do that in any kind of public office. There's the, the it's a great experience actually. It's and it's and it's a good thing to do. And it's what keeps democracy alive. Well, all I can say is, and I, I mean this genuinely, it'll sound. I'm sure people roll their eyes, but like. When I came in as Brands PPS, believe me, when I was told I was going to be a PPS, the Secretary of State of Northern Ireland, that was a very odd phone call because I was like, okay, fine. I wasn't really aware of what I was going to be. And actually it was James who told me, having known you, if you're going to go in and learn from anyone, Brand is one of the ones you want to go and learn from in terms of how Parliament works, campaigning and things like that. And all I can say was an absolute pleasure, genuinely, to serve under you, to see how you ran a department, to see how you work with your association, to meet your fabulous wife, who is absolutely incredibly sound, <laughs> to, uh, to to obviously work with special advisors and see that on the ground. It was a real learning experience. And I think that, and actually you won't remember this, but I do. I remember telling the Dean Sahawi, my MP then at the time, Stratford Penhaven, that I wanted to be an MP. And he gave me loads of advice and obviously mentored me for a long time. But he said to me, I want you to meet someone. You need to come down to Westminster. I believe it was about 2012. And the I some random... 22 year old nobody reached out to a certain Brandon Lewis MP and said could I come and have a coffee with you and understand it and you kindly gave me 45 minutes of your time to sit down in the middle of Portcullis house to explain the process and it stayed with me forever that because everything you taught me number one was absolutely true number two was at a time when I was probably thinking actually I want to get there but no one like me is ever going to get there and you sort of outlined actually it's just the hard work the campaigning and being everywhere, and you'll earn respect through that. You don't have to be from money, you don't have to be from connections. No. And so I just want to personally say thank you, because I wouldn't be here without you and another, a couple of other people I mentioned the pod before. So that love letter that we've uh, just done at the end there, uh, <laughs> I'll move on from. I'm sure there'll be people puking well, up uh, in buckets now. But. And uh, I will say, look, you were, you were great to have as a PPS. And we went through, you know, and as PPS, you were part of a team that delivered some historic things. You know, what we've done on Legacy and what we've done delivering medical support and uh, access to medical care for women in Northern Ireland around abortion and other things, you know, is, is really important stuff where we can all be very proud of and the, and the whole team at the NIO actually, Northern Ireland office. And I'm really proud of that and what we've done for our veterans there. But, um, but look, yeah, I, I would say to anybody, as I say, it's getting involved is a good thing to do. If you believe whatever party actually, and obviously I'd rather you did it in the Conservative <laughs> party, um, but whatever party, you can make a difference and that's that's good. And that's that's how democracy works. Well, thank you again, Sir Brandon Lewis, for coming on the show. Uh, obviously, thank you to everyone for tuning and listening. Remember, you just simply have to follow or subscribe however it is that you listen to your podcast. You need to make sure you follow us on Twitter at Whitehall Pod UK. But most importantly, you need to leave us a rating, brackets five stars, please. And leave us a review so you can tell us what you think and what you've been hearing and obviously what type of questions you'd like us to ask of future guests. But thank you, Brandon, as always, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.